0: That's a hunk of change. You have to, like, get a lot of attention in order to have justified that kind of investment.
1: When he told me the money he'd given in, I said, God, that's awful. And he said, I don't care.
0: I'm Ben Davis, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Art.net News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Well, we're well into 2024 now, the end of January. Looking back at 2023, one of my favorite innovations of the year for us was this monthly chat cast where we bring together people to talk about the art news at the end of each month. I'm very excited to be doing that again now with my colleagues, Kate Brown and Joe Lawson Tancred. Hi, Kate. Hey, Ben. And Joe.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on.
0: So we got New York here. We've got London and Berlin. Today we're going to be talking about predictions for the new year, summing up all the various coverage, looking forward to 2024 in the art industry, some of the controversies around various Venice Biennale pavilions and Marina Abramovic's new line of skincare products. But before we get into any of that, I wanted to talk a little bit about what art you guys have seen or what art you guys are looking forward to because it is still early in the year and I haven't really gotten into my art-going groove. Kate, have you seen anything? Are you looking forward to anything? What's going on in Berlin?
2: Well, yeah, it's been a slow start of the year for me in terms of going out to see art. But I think the next thing that I'm really excited to go and see is an exhibition at the K20 in Düsseldorf. It's the first time that Hilma F. Klint, who we've done a podcast about before, is going to be put side by side with Vasily Kandinsky, actually. And they, of course, were making art of similar themes and in a similar time. Kandinsky obviously became a lot more famous than Hilma, although the world is catching up with her now.
0: Are you getting into theosophy, Kate? Their shared mystical belief system? Not
2: as such, but it would be one way to cope with the weirdness of the world these days, wouldn't it?
0: (laughs) Sure. Joe, what about you?
1: Yeah, well, I also have had a kind of slow start to the year in terms of gallery going, but I'm very excited for the upcoming sergeant and fashion show at Tate, which I believe was on in Boston. But I am a huge fan of sergeant obsessive, so I don't think there can be enough sergeant exhibitions. So that's the highlight of the calendar for me.
0: Honestly, Joe, one of my favorites too. You know, I love his mercenary glamour. -hmm. I think that he, for me, really nails a certain sense of style in painting that I really love.
1: I like that we're kind of allowed to delight in those surface aspects because they're done so well. So it's not too superficial. Absolutely. What about Uh, you, Ben?
0: It's the 50th birthday of the International Center of Photography here in New York. They've got a 50th anniversary show. I'm looking forward to that. It's an interesting institution. The kind of history of photography is. An interesting subject, but it's winter. I've been indoors. I've been super busy with just getting the year started on its right foot. I loved the TV show The Curse, Nathan Fielder's TV show. I have an essay about it. I think the show has a lot of interesting art in it, a lot of interesting things to say about what it means to make art now, but that's the closest to an art going experience I've had in the last few weeks. But do check out the essay. So all that having been said, we're looking forward to the art we're going to see. The beginning of the year is also a time when the art world watchers or art industry watchers are making their predictions about what's to come and where they're going to place their interest and direct people's attention. We've published a couple of pieces, different kinds of art professionals assessing 2023 and looking ahead to the next year. And so we thought that we'd kick off just talking about the year to come and all the different tea leaf reading that people are doing. What have you guys picked out of this coverage? We could sum up for the audience what the tone of that kind of coverage, what's been on people's minds.
2: Something that we were talking about in September came up again in the coverage that I was reading, which is this quote unquote buyer's market which, you know, means that obviously buyers are calling the shots in transactions more so than the sellers. But it is interesting to peel back layers of what that actually means, because sometimes it's spun as like, oh, collectors are now more thoughtful than they ever were before, or the market is a little less frothy. But then some other art advisors that we spoke with and some dealers that Katia Kazahina spoke to for her piece with predictions in it, spoke about general feeling of uncertainty that was causing this buyer's market. So I feel like there's some consensus about what's going on, but not a consensus about whether it's okay or not.
0: Like whether or not things are going to be okay. So you mean?
2: And whether there's any reason for optimism, basically. Right.
1: Some people were saying to even say it's a buyer's market is optimistic because the buyers don't really want to buy. And if anything, they want to resell as fast as possible. All the stuff they regret buying <laughs> So it was quite gloomy, some of it.
0: Obviously, people want to put the, as rosy a spin on things as possible. And there's a lot of spin out there. I, I think with something we've been talking about all last year is that it, there's a lot of sort of indigestion and feelings of uncertainty in the world. And yeah, behind the scenes, the quotes that I picked out were advisors talking about how there was a real huge moment of art buying and people are just stuck with a lot of inventory that they don't know what to do with. And that's working its way through the system. Now, the most interesting thing is also from Katya's report for Artnet News Pro, or most interesting development in the coverage was something we talked a lot about last year was the idea of the flight to safety. That what you were seeing a lot of in the galleries Was safe bets, a lot of paintings of flowers and pretty decorative stuff because that was one of the things that connoted a sort of like the safety and stability and just knowable kind of art value that people were interested in. So then I was reading some of the predictions and some of the collectors, and whether this is them justifying their appetites to themselves or not, but basically saying like, I don't know if I want to buy too much because art seems boring right now. And I was just thinking that is a sort of a logical progression that the flight to safety makes a lot of sense at a certain point, but at a certain point, art stops feeling dangerous and interesting and exciting for people to be a part of, which is certainly a background vibe for me. It's a
2: bit of a vicious cycle, it sounds like, like race to the bottom (laughs) of aesthetics. But yeah, I also think that sounds true. And then the people that are the most affected by that, also from what I was reading, is artists that are emerging and mid-career artists. So it seems like it doesn't really matter what you're painting or what sculptures you're making if you're at a certain echelon of the art market, but this sort of austerity that's like lurking around seems to have a real impact or will have a real impact this year on the success of younger
1: artists. Yeah. And it sounded like small galleries as well. Someone was saying there'll definitely be some closures and people that won't make it through. So, yeah.
0: Sadly, Alexander and Bonin, a pretty respected New York Gallery of Longstanding, just announced that it was closing. Foxy Productions, a gallery I really respected, closed last year, and there are a bunch of others. But does feel like there is a real shakeout, and a lot of people talking about how that shakeout is felt most amongst the ultra contemporary artists, Hmm. a term that actually Hartnett coined for the youngest cohort of contemporary art, and I honestly think that a lot of this is. Best summed up as a continuing collapse of the middle. I always think it's basically just a single variable calculus. I mean, people talk a lot about various forms of instability and nervousness, but I basically think that the art market tracks inequality. And as the middle of society continues to collapse, it inevitably affects the middle of the art market because it's always money for the best. You know, there's always people willing to pay for the stuff that is iconic and has obvious value and then there are people who if something's cheap enough there's not that much risk in taking a chance on it and you can support your friends you can support weird esoteric fancies and if you're the kind of person who is in it for the money there's a good chance you can make a few pennies on it but it's the middle stuff it's the mid-career artists and the middle of the gallery sector that it seems like is most eroded, unfortunately.
2: Interestingly, I think that there's an increasing amount of awareness about the unsustainability of that situation. And I was noticing that Hauser & Wirth, two of its newly represented artists, have been announced in partnership with uh, younger galleries. So... Uman is being represented by Hauser & Wirth, but it'll be in partnership with Nicola Vasil and Amber Wellman will be represented in partnership with Company Gallery. So the situation is in a lot of ways dire, but it's nice to see some moves being made in a positive direction in that sense.
0: Do you see any causes for cautious optimism in 2024,
1: Joe? Well, I did notice that a lot of the advisors were saying they thought the trends that already exists of rediscovering overlooked women artists was definitely set to continue. And also they thought the platforming of Indigenous artists would be a big theme that we'd be seeing in 2024 as well.
0: Yeah, I noticed that was like almost universally everybody mentioned that as like a theme. And I think some of the data about the big auction sales last year bore this out that like there was a real rise in the position of some female artists historically important female artists seems like a good thing to me I do find it I don't know, slightly suspicious how universal this is as a thing people are holding on to in like this particular market moment, because it seems like inclusion as being like a market opportunity and that it's like in a time when there was like seems to have been consensus, like a bubble, a lot of overbuying and people are holding on to a lot of stuff that they maybe bought irrationally and looking to justify losses, like looking around and reading the wind and seeing what narrative of progress people can hold on to, where they can like predict future increases in value. And I mean, I guess it it does seem to be true that there's a moment of reshuffling of the historical canon and people can place their chips on that.
2: But I guess it's not without its problematics, which is a theme in The Curse, to circle back to that television show you're watching. Their Art World commentary is very much about the sort of underlying festering problems that happen in this kind of like inclusion project.
0: That's a good point. That's a good point. And there's a lot of sort of suspicion about that. I guess I just am suspicious of it because it's when the commitment to a more inclusive art world is motivated by values. It just seems so vulnerable to reversal and it's not really the reason to do it. But I am, I guess, to see that it's the talking point for everybody because a certain kind of turn against DEI rhetoric amongst the super rich is another theme of the recent past and we are in a reactionary political moment. So I'm glad to see the people who have more access to the super rich than I do, still think that it's something they're betting on, at least temporarily and opportunistically. We'll see how that holds. Anything else on predictions? Any other things leap out at you?
2: Last year, there was a lot of these single owner sales that didn't go well. So I think that is also something important to remark on for 2024 is that I think that There won't be any of these like big flashy single owner sales. A lot of that stuff is probably going to go on behind closed doors because there was was a lot of bad headlines in 2023 around that. And people are having trouble moving these big artworks, as I think one of you were saying earlier. This sort of insecurity about getting stuck with inventory, so to speak. My empathy is slight, to say the least.
1: (laughs)
0: Well, one thing that we are definitely watching and looking forward to in 2024 is the Venice Biennale, the big art festival in Venice. It's kind of like the Olympics of the art world. Countries from around the world send various kinds of uh, representatives. And we've talked a little bit about the politics of the Biennale in Italy before on this show, but... There's also a lot of news coming out about all the various pavilions. And Joe, I know you've been doing a lot of that coverage. What's the latest?
1: Yeah, well, as we approach four months now, I think, until it opens, there have been two kind of most headline grabbing last minute switch ups. The first is Morocco, which seems to have backed out of its original plan, everything was very underway. They had curators and artists who'd been to Venice, scoped out the site, and they'd done a lot of funding themselves of the project on the understanding that they would be reimbursed. The main curator, Mahibin, who is quite an established painter and novelist, I think like a coup for them at their first pavilion, he says that he put in 40,000 euros of his own money, about $45,000. Again, on the understanding that he'd be paid back, I think it was quite an ambitious show they have put on and one of the artists is renting out a warehouse and getting lots of collaborators to have made the sculptural installation. So that was all a go and then only literally last week on Monday the 15th, they got a call from the ministry that I kind of got the impression of being dodging the emails a bit, saying the whole thing was off. They'd actually picked someone else and I'm under the impression that there was no sense that they are going to be paid back anytime soon. So obviously they were devastated, and that's, I imagine, soured the whole mood, really, for that inaugural pavilion. That was
0: the first ever Morocco pavilion, Joe.
1: Yeah, apparently, yeah. Wow, that's surprising something. Yeah, I agree. That's what they're saying on the news stories. Perhaps it came and went.
0: Well, it's not the way to do it, for sure. One thing that is true, but one doesn't always think about, is that It's not like there's one obvious process for this, the National Pavilion representation that every country follows. Like, every country is really doing it their own way. And for some, it's a very official state project. For some, it's, like, just private actors throwing in. And there's always a lot of chaos. So there is always a lot of, like, stories about different countries renegotiating the rules for the representation. But this is a pretty bad one. And the issue... It brings up of artists having to like pay their own way, essentially, just being in this precarious position of trying to seize this opportunity and then being left holding the bag. This one that kind of resonates beyond just this particular story. Kate?
2: As I was reading it, I was thinking, oh, it probably has to do with the current economy. But then I was remembering, as you say, like over the years, we hear these stories again and again, and it really seems to be that there's something wrong with the system of how a biennial invitation works, because there is, as you say, there's no consensus on how it should be done. And I think that implicit in the invitation to be invited to the Venice Biennial, no artist is going to say no to, even if they can't afford it. So it's just like not exactly like a fair relationship from the get go. And if you're from a country that's operating within the Western art world and has some artists that are trading on the Western art market, a lot of the times the galleries will help patch the bill here and there. But, you know, if you're an emerging artist that gets invited to do your first the first pavilion for some country, you're going to try to just make it work and you might not have very many means. So there's something really wrong with the structure of the whole thing, in my
0: opinion. And fifty thousand dollars which is what this particular curator said they put in. That's a hunk of change. You have to, like, get a lot of attention in order to have justified that kind of investment.
1: When he told me the money he'd given in, I said, God, that's awful. And he said, I don't care. I think basically meaning it's small fry compared to the devastating disappointment of finding out four months before we're supposed to do the show that it's off. They've taken it very hard. Yeah, understandably. And that's not the only recent
0: story on this wavelength. I think the kind of pavilions and the other one is political conflict, dispute. And that's more the case of the Polish pavilion, right?
1: The Polish pavilion is interesting. So basically, I think one of the big headline stories as we go into the Venice Biennale has been the switch up that was discussed on the podcast already, where the Italian New right-wing government have put in a sympathizing far-right journalist to be the new president of Venice. Now, he won't have much influence on this year's edition, but there's a question mark over whether he'll have some say over the curatorial direction next time. So Poland's have done the reverse of Italy, had a populist right-wing government, and then only just recently re-elected or elected in a centrist prime minister. And they've backtracked on their original submission. So the original submission was a painter who had quite dark paintings about the history of Poland yeah. with Germany and Russia, which is, I think, quite a painful history. But it was branded anti-European because... It's not really in the spirit of Venice or indeed this year's edition's theme of foreigners everywhere to turn up and put on a show about how much you hate your neighbouring countries. So that was deemed not in the spirit of things. And it's going to be replaced now with a Ukrainian art collective who are doing a performance video.
2: I mean, obviously, my bias is that that sounds great that there's a this Ukrainian collective, However, just off the back of what we were just talking about, like that's a very last minute switch to make for an artist. Like what is that artist who was supposed to do the pavilion before? Has he made any comments about that? I mean, that must be immensely disappointing,
1: regardless of your politics. He has spoken about it and he he called it censorship, which I don't know. Hmm.
0: Yeah, well, I think Poland has been this... Interesting case in the last few years where you really see what it looks like when a country where a lot of the art world is more proximate to the government and state patronage. And people are always talking about how great state patronage is, which is great until you get a state that really wants to assert itself ideologically through those spaces. And in Poland, this kind of culture wars idea of reclaiming, which we also talked about in the Italian case because there's some of the same vibe going on of like right-wing government basically saying we're taking back the institutions of culture and we're putting our people in there who are going to do art that goes against the traditional liberal, cosmopolitan, globalist consensus of the art world and really press on that front. And that has been the case in Poland in the last few years, and there's been lots of protest and discussion about that. And I don't know a lot about this artist, the Polish artist who's going to show, and I couldn't find anything about the show. I mean, you described it a little. It's called Polish Practice in Tragedy Between Germany and Russia. But I couldn't really discern what really concerned people so much about it, except that they felt like they could better represent the country given the changed political moment.
1: Was seeing seen as a nationalist and kind of dredging up A history that is validly painful, but perhaps not super relevant to kind of moving forward. And it would be contentious in a way to be pointing fingers in your exhibition at perhaps less Russia, but certainly Germany. There'd
2: been so much censorship going on at institutions in recent years in Poland. A lot of people had been losing their jobs. The right-wing government had been replacing all these museum directors. So it's also understandable that as soon as you get into power, you want to like grab some of that back as soon as possible in the ways that you can. And Venice is a very prominent place. But thinking about the Polish institution and the Moroccan institution, and even the conversation we're having before, it's like you can almost just feel chaos and uncertainty just simmering everywhere, manifesting in totally different ways. And I was also thinking about another pavilion that was also pulled out in August of 2023, the New Zealand Pavilion. And it just feels like Nothing is on such stable ground anymore. I mean, maybe you can speak a bit about what happened with that, Joe,
1: yeah, so New Zealand kind of pulled out for a bunch of reasons. it did cite that it has costed them in the past seven hundred and fifteen thousand dollars to do the pavilion, and then on top of that, a whole load of work for the National Arts Council that just they called unsustainable its selection process it views as if not only picking Western artists or certainly censoring those who work in a Western tradition so it's doing a total rehaul and a total rethink and it is going to come back with a partner organization that I think will support the organizational process that's become overwhelming.
2: I wonder if it'll be Freeze Magazine. <laughs> Since they're sponsoring the British Pavilion this year, aren't they? Yeah. What's going on with
0: that? I just saw that story out of the corner of my eye. Freeze Magazine is, I mean, speaking of how the every nation does it a little bit differently, and there's not one way that people do the Venice Biennale. There's this story about how the British Pavilion and the famed art fair magazine brand Freeze are in cahoots.
1: Well, Freeze Fair announced that it's paying apparently a five-figure sum to sponsor the British Pavilion, which has caused a lot of people to scratch their heads about why they would be motivated to do that. I've, some kind of analysis I've read has suggested it might be in Freeze London's interest to boost London in the UK as an important art centre during the post-Brexit uncertainty Freeze's director Eva Longre did say this is about putting UK art on an international stage and Freeze also sponsored Camden Art Centre which much like Venice Biennale is one of those kind of contemporary art highly respected institutions that really propel artists to performing really well on the market so there is some kind of perhaps not direct rider interest in being involved with that because it's part of the ecosystem, I guess.
0: Fascinating. I mean, I guess really a time of new arrangements and uh, new kind of compromises. I don't know exactly what it all means. I mean, I guess it is about the sort of shifting plate tectonics of world cultural power. And I guess in that case, the UK thinking about needing to promote itself as particularly open and in a time when it's become more shut off from Europe. Fascinating. Speaking of fascinating new developments, the last thing we want to talk about, Kate, is Marina Abramovic's line of skincare. Just tell us what this is all about.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think this very much fits into your comment about like new relationships and new models emerging. We have not seen before. I suppose so. Marina Abramovich, the omnipresent performance artist that we all know so well, has gone into business with her doctor, Nona Brenner, this Austrian doctor who apparently cured Marina of Lyme disease and of high blood pressure, which she had in 2017. And Abramovich goes there twice a year to see this doctor. And anyway, So happens that they have now gone into business together and are launching a skincare line with sort of a mini drop of these little bottles with syringes in them and little drops of different kinds that are at least a hundred bucks.
0: From my knowledge of skincare products, it's the higher end,
2: right? I would say so, for sure. I mean, it gets even more expensive than that, but that's definitely definitely not going to be on the shelves of Sephora. Yeah, it's a strange thing. And, you know, people have been trying to give her the graces of thinking that it might be a performance piece. And I wish it were, but I'm not so sure. It's called the Marina Abramovich longevity method, which is obviously like a spin-off of her Abramovich method of performance art. But also then there was this deck of cards that showed up at one point that you could buy. So, yeah, it's just totally weird. I mean, maybe we should play a clip of it just to give everyone a sense of.
0: Yeah, I think nothing gives a sense of it than hearing the actual ad for it. Yeah. In this age of screens,
2: our souls seek the simplicity of the past. Each breath is a chance to reconnect and add years to
1: our life. Our true longevity isn't in machines, but in ancient knowledge.
2: The Abramovich method brings us back to ancient secrets of longevity.
0: Well, there it is. I mean, are you going to be paying $250, 199 euros for this bottle of face lotion made with white bread, vitamin C, and white wine?
2: Joe, I think we should try to get you some for free and then you can do like Gonzo journalism review of it.
1: Uh, Apparently you have to put 50 drops of the drops into a glass of water with every meal. So even when you're spending a hundred pounds or whatever, I think you can go for it quite quickly.
0: I mean, that sounds like a performance art piece itself. Carefully measuring out (laughs) a hundred drops of magical elixir. (laughs) I mean, I think it's a couple of things. I think that on one hand a very natural evolution in the sense that Marina Abramovic is a figure who has a lot of currency in fashion circles she also is an icon and is much studied and has been interested in different kinds of ritualistic magical practices and this line of product is this kind of like goop-esque woo kind of spiritual gloss on it. And then on the flip side, I think because it is a little weird, like as you heard in the trailer, the rhetoric is like, we've got too much stuff in our lives, buy my stuff. But I do think the buy my stuff idea does bring up a real issue and dilemma for performance artists like she is the iconic the most important performance artist and even as she has mainstreamed performance art essentially as one of the most important exemplars and avatars of that discipline performance art began as deliberately anti-commodity and it remains hard to make a living as a performance artist. There's not really a lot of object to sell. What can you do? Edition photos, sell off props from what you've done. And I think in the last decade or so, Abramovich has been like looking around for ways to turn The kind of notoriety and fame that comes with being a famous performance artist into money, which is the same as someone like Gwyneth Paltrow or any of these other movie stars. That's the world we live in now, where even the most famous actors are hawking liquor brands and skincare lines. That's where the real money is.
1: Well, I asked her gallery, and they sell her performances from the 70s through documentation like photos and videos. And I was thinking of this as like another way that you can sell a performance art because. If you think about all that she's endured for her art, pain, starvation, risk of violence, I can see why she at least says that she's trying to share this idea that we can improve our endurance and our willpower and our discipline. So A, it makes sense she's quite new agey given kind of if you really think about her performances and that kind of, she talked a bit about connecting with your body and how people in Western culture don't revel not. She's an authority on that. Rather than documenting in a traditional way, you could share a performance work by trying to make the receiver of the drops or the instruction cards understand a little bit of what you went through. Like one of the instruction cards says to drink a glass of water as slowly as you can. It's about slowing down endurance. So it's a way of sharing that message in a totally different way of kind of prolonging the life of her work, I guess. I mean, that's maybe a generous reading, but it's one. (laughs) I think it's totally a fair one. And I think you're also probably right. It's just, as Ben said,
2: it's a little unfortunate that it's happening within this instagram environment of people hawking wellness culture all the time and i very much see that she was like an innovator of a certain esotericism long before maybe it was like a buzzword so i think that's maybe where it just becomes cringy and then there's also just the price point thing the deck of cards which i think had a little bit more of an intrinsic value were around 20 bucks and these are just like extremely expensive they're not going to be available to most people it's not really a public work agree
0: it's art lotion at an art price point for sure well okay Yeah, she's working with this famous doctor. They're co-branding this thing. They've got their thumbprints on it to give the person who buys it a sense of connection to their aura. And she speaks very highly of the kind of medicinal routines. But on the other hand, she's 77. She looks great. She also says, I never drink, smoke, or take drugs. I sleep eight hours a day. And I have a lover who is 21 years younger. So those are all things that you yourself can do and cost you exactly nothing in the original (laughs) spirit of performance art.
2: (laughs) She also said, just think about what we were talking about earlier about overlooked female artists. She said, quote, female artists only really get taken seriously after 100. So maybe if I make it, they will finally take me seriously. And Nona's method is determined for me to live to be 110. So it all circles back to her. There,
0: yeah, it <laughs> all circles back to overlooked and undervalued female artists, and we're rooting for them in the new year. And I am rooting for her, albeit with a little bit of an eye roll. And <laughs> I think we can leave it there. Kate and Joe, thanks so much for chatting with me as we kick off 2024.
2: Yeah, it's going to be a weird year. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, thank you.
0: That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other various services. If you like the show, please take a moment to rate and review it. It really helps other people find the show. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week.